Welcome to Business Law and More, the podcast that's all about the journey, not just the destination. My name is Rena. I'm a lawyer, business owner, and managing partner of Cosbon. This podcast is for creative entrepreneurs where we discuss business insights, legal hurdles, and more to help you build a business and life that you love. Thanks for spending time with me today. Turn up the volume and let's begin. So today we're going to be talking about commercial property and in particular leases and what a tenant would like to see in a lease. Now we have done some podcasts recently about landlord friendly leases and this is totally the opposite. So if you're a tenant, this episode is for you. Now it's time to welcome my guest, Lena Thakra, who is a commercial property partner at Cosbond Solicitors. Lena has a wealth of experience in commercial property, acting for both landlords and tenants. Thank you for joining us, Lena. Hi, thanks for having me, Rena. Brilliant. So let's crack on with this then, because I know you're eager and I know you've got more than six things on your list, but we'll go <laughs> through and limit got. it. Absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. I know you are for landlords and tenants, and I know that the leases can be very different depending on who you're acting for. And sometimes there's a, a heads of terms, which is an agreement setting out the salient provisions that have been agreed. Sometimes there aren't. It just depends. But when acting for a tenant, what would you like to see or what sort of nuggets of information can you give to our listeners who are tenants that they would want to see in a tenant-friendly lease, if you like? So as you touched on there, the salient terms would hopefully be set out quite nicely on the heads of terms, but these can be very detailed and these can be quite vague or non-existent where it's terms that have been agreed directly between parties without agents involved. On one of our other podcasts, we looked at things that landlords would be looking for in a lease and we touched on break clauses there. And I think conversely, from the tenant point of view, break clauses is an important provision that you'd want to see clearly set out in the lease, but you'd want it to see to be slightly more limited if at all possible. So for example, if there are conditions attached to the exercise of the break clause, then you'd want it limited to payment of the annual rent. You wouldn't want to see it drafted any wider to include insurance rent and service charge, primarily because they may not have set payment dates, whereas the annual rent is payable quarterly or monthly. So you just wouldn't want the tenant to have the risk of missing those payment dates or not knowing that they are due or potentially even there being dispute over whether they're due or whether they've been ascertained and things like that. And then that go into the validity of the break clause, which could have obviously massive repercussions for tenant. Can you have more than one break clause in a lease? I've seen it where there's one break or a landlord break or a tenant break. But can you have multiple breaks in a lease? Yep. No, good question. And absolutely. You can get rolling breaks where a break could be exercised at any point after a particular date, or you may have set break dates and they can be multiple in number. So you may have one on, I don't know, the second the fourth and the sixth anniversary. It's just absolutely dependent on what parties agree. But like I say, if there are multiple breaks in there, you just need to make sure that's properly documented, representing what the parties are seeking to agree. That's interesting, actually, yeah. And I suppose if the tenant is obtaining funding and the lender is taking the charge mm-hmm. of release as well, provided it's a tenant break only, that might be seen favourable as opposed to a landlord break. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, from a tenant-friendly lease point of view, if that is a phrase, you definitely want to see tenant only breaks in there uh, because it's got the ability to obviously, it's an exit strategy if required. Mm. And a landlord break opens up uncertainty. You don't know if it's a rolling landlord break at any point that landlord may serve that break notice. What if you just refit? What if you just built up amazing goodwill here and the landlord then ultimately potentially cream off of that by serving the break notice and then increasing the rent to get somebody else in? 
Very interesting, actually. I never thought about all of that. So there's lots of commercial points around that as well. Definitely a hot topic. I think moving on, I think assignment and subletting, things like that are quite important for a tenant as well. They want the ability to assign. Again, I think to the break clause point in that it's an exit strategy if required. Subletting, so that's where the tenant remains on the hook under the lease, but it's sublet, it's interest, so it's got a tenant almost sitting under it. And from a tenant point of view, you'd want to see the ability to sublet whole and potentially sublet part if the property has the ability of potentially being kind of partitioned. So the tenant occupies half and then sublets the other half. And then that kind of provides a rental stream for some of it as well. So if there isn't an assignment provision in the lease, does that mean that the tenant can't assign? No, the opposite. If it's silent, then the tenant can assign and sublet. I see. Okay, that's really interesting. But you'd need to put something specific in there about whole or part. Yes. Unless, sorry, the, the lease specifically says that the tenant can only alienate or assign or sublet in accordance with these provisions, then it's drafted that way around. Okay. I think that is another topic in itself as well, yep. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have lots of spin-off topics from, from this podcast. Brilliant. What are the other things? So we talked about break. And we talked about the ability to assign and sublet whole part. Yeah. So if you're taking a new lease, then essentially alterations as well, fitting out and things like that. Ideally, from a tenant point of view, the ability to carry out non-structural alterations without consent would be ideal. You can build in protective provisions so you then provide the landlord with your as-built plans and specifications, et cetera. They can see what you've done, but it just removes that extra obstacle and time element as well. So you just get on with the work and then let the landlord know what you've done. It's unusual to see the ability for tenants to carry out structural alterations in leases, especially obviously internal leases. If it's a longer lease and it's a lease of whole, then you do sometimes see the ability to carry out structural alterations. But for that, you would more than likely require landlord consent. That's interesting as well. So that was number three about alterations with consent, whether structural or cosmetic or whatever they are, with consent and without consent. Another kind of big point, I think, for a tenant is whether the lease is inside or outside of the Act. This is a big topic. (laughs) How long have we got, Nina? I know, no, absolutely. (laughs) And it's always a big sticking point in kind of negotiations that, heads of turn stage as well, because from the tenant point of view, putting all of this money uh, into this property, fitting it out, building a business. So it's quite nice to know that at the end of that term, whether that's five years or 10 years, you've got the ability to stay on and have that lease renewed. So that's where you'd want the lease to be inside the act. And you've built up goodwill. You may have, you've fitted out, you may have even refreshed in between so it would be very disappointing to then at the end of that five or 10 year term for Mr. Landlord to say, bye bye, you need to leave now. Or make demands if you wanted to stay. So Absolutely. The rent yes. increases. And yeah, you've got very little leverage then if it's outside because yeah. the landlord can command whatever rent it, it likes. Yeah, that is a whole new topic. Yeah, so for sure. Yeah, we have to cover that again. No, that's brilliant. So that's number four, inside or outside of the landlord and tenant tax 1954. So the next one I would say is Potentially the frequency of the rent payments, landlords to see, and I think the general position in commercial leases is rent is payable quarterly. But I think more more so since COVID, you're seeing provisions of rent paid monthly, which just from a cash flow point of view can help tenants because it's not three months up front, three months up front that you've got to pay. So if you can pay monthly, perhaps on the first day of each month, 
that's sometimes a nice to have as well in leases, like I say, just to assist with the cash flow side. Yeah, because whenever I've seen leases, as the rent payment days are on the set quarter date, and I'm sure I remember seeing something being on the 25th of December. Yes. yes. And you think, is that not a public holiday <laughs> other than for landlords? That's very true. Yeah, who made that up? They were laughing when they did, though. <laughs> yeah, but you're right that we're seeing a lot more businesses or tenants asking for monthly payments to help them with the cash flow as well. Mm. And also, it comes back to the first point you made about if there was an exercise of break, and then the refund of rent and the apportionment yes, that's, of that as well. That's so a very good point, actually, Rina, that if we can just go back to that yeah. as you raised it, where there's a tenant break, you'd want to see or you would need to see specific drafting saying that any rent that has been paid that postdates the break date is refunded to the tenant. There's been case law on this. If that specific drafting is not in there, then if the rent is paid that sort of goes beyond the break date, then the landlord is actually able to retain that. So that's quite important drafting you want to see from the same point of view, actually. Some nice pocket money for the landlord there. Absolutely, absolutely. So that was point number five about the rent payments and whether on Christmas Day or not, or yeah. on, the con- on, on, on a monthly basis. Did you have one more for us, Rena? Yes, I think it's linked to the cash flow point, actually, Rena, and it's, If you are, for example, a new company taking a lease, starting a business, then the landlord is going to be a little bit concerned perhaps about the tenant covenant strength and your ability to meet the rental payments on the due dates. So they would be looking for a rent deposit, for example, equivalent to, I don't know, three months rent and potentially a personal guarantee as well. If it's a new business, your stakes are already quite high. So you may be looking to not to provide that personal guarantee if you can avoid it. So if you've got the cash flow available, then, you know, it may be more advantageous if you can perhaps increase the rent deposit. So if they're saying they want three months rent deposit and a personal guarantee, perhaps say we'll increase the rent deposit to six months. And then going back to the cash flow point, you can say, we'll pay six months now. If we're a good tenant and we meet all of our obligations, the rent's paid up on time, then perhaps at the end of year three, as long as we've paid all of our rent, et cetera, that's due, then three months of the rent deposit would be repaid to the tenant. Mr. Tenant's happy because no personal guarantee in three months rent is returned and the landlord's happy because it's still got its three months rent deposit sitting there in the pot. So it's almost like an early release. It's an mm, early release absolutely. mechanism of yes. the rent deposit. And sometimes I've seen that where the landlord's asked for accounts of the tenant as well. And said, if your accounts look like this, or if they're healthy, or whatever your profit is, or etc., then we will release some of the rent uh, deposit back to you as well. Is that a thing? Yes, no, absolutely. So the early release mechanism that you just mentioned is often linked to a it's an, almost a two-pronged test. One, you've been a good tenant, you've paid all of your rent, limb A. And then limb B, like you say, is that if you can show that your profits exceed a certain amount, then the, the normal amount is three times the annual rent and they would be looking at the audited accounts and EBITDA and things like that. So as long as you hit those targets, then you'd get the money back. That's really interesting. So they are six fascinating points. And I think on each of them, Lena, we'll need to call you back and do some more podcasts with you. I think we need to have a poll still with the order in which <laughs> you're going to go. They're all very interesting topics. I think we do. So thank you very much for joining us, Lena. That's been really helpful. And I hope the audience have found it helpful as well. Please do join us again, Lena. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Rena.
Thanks for listening to Business Law and More, a Cosbon podcast. Before we go, if you enjoy the podcast, please follow and subscribe to the show. Share the podcast or tell a friend about it. Leave us a review and stay tuned for more next week.